Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Welcome everyone to episode 108 of the Best in the World with Rich Pie. Yes, 108 episodes. That means I've spoken to 108 different world or Olympic champions, world record holders or world number ones to find out what they do differently from the rest of us to be the very best. And they give us actionable information that we can take away and use to improve our everyday life or our own sporting ambition. And we can certainly do that on this week's podcast. I speak to the two-time Olympic champion, three-time world champion in skeet shooting, Vincent Hancock. Vincent was only 19 years of age when he won Olympic gold at the 2008 Beijing Games. He then lost a bit of motivation for the sport in 2011, but he was able to get through it and go on to compete at the 2012 London Olympics, where in the final, he hit every single target. An incredible performance from the American. And he talks about exactly how he was able to do that on this week's podcast. He tells us, what he does to keep himself focused. And it's definitely a technique that we can use in our everyday life. Listen to that part of the conversation with Vincent. He also talks about his time with the United States Army Marksmanship Unit. He talks about his relationship with his father. He also mentioned how he got interested in the sport as a youngster. It's a really fun conversation with Vincent. He also talks about how his life has changed since he's become a father. And I can't wait to share it with all of you on this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr. Before we do that, I just want to tell you about Audible. Audible is one of the leading suppliers of audiobooks in the world. They've got over 180,000 titles for you to choose from. And you know if you've listened to this podcast before that I'm a big fan of listening to audiobooks. The one which really got me hooked to start with was Total Recall by Arnold Schwarzenegger. If you want to learn about becoming the very best, if you want to learn about high performance in sports and in business, 
you definitely want to listen to Total Recall by Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a fantastic listen. And you can listen to it for free on Audible by trying out their service by going to audibletrial.com forward slash best. There you can get a free 30-day trial and that includes one free audiobook download. Perhaps it could be Total Recall by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Go and check it out, audibletrial.com forward slash best. All right, let's get to the conversation with the two-time Olympic champion in skeet shooting. It's Vincent Hancock. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Vincent Hancock, two-time Olympic champion, three-time world champion in skeet shooting. Welcome to the best in the world with Richard Park. It's so great to have you. Uh, I think a nice place would be to start with you, Vincent, is how did you first get started in the sport? Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the time. Um, Getting into the shooting sports was kind of a family affair for me. My father and brother were both competitive shooters. They were all Americans by the time I was about the age of five. And then, so I had kind of grown up around it, but then my brother got out of it about 16 years old, started playing a lot of football, got interested in that. So my dad supported him there. And then at about 10 years old, my dad started to try to get back into the shooting sports. And he'd always kind of... Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tinkered with it, helped out with some coaching here and there with some of the younger kids in the area. And then at 10, he took me out to a range near Atlanta, Georgia, and I shot my first skeet clay targets. And I kind of fell in love with it from there. And Shot a couple of years with him, just local events, and then we found out that shooting was in the Olympics. So we got invited to go up to the Olympic range where they hosted the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta and went there, shot, had a great time. Two days into it, uh, on the drive home, 
uh, I told my parents that I wanted to go to the Olympics and I wanted to win a gold medal. And that was really the start of everything at 12 years old. Wow. That, that is one of the times where when you say you want to do something, you really achieved it because then you went on to do it. That's incredible. Did you hit the target on your first ever shot? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> it took me a few times, but actually none of the fun, one of the fun things that I remember doing at about four or five years old and that I've actually already done with my girls too is my dad took me out to the range and he put the gun on his shoulder and he held the gun up and then I wrapped my arm over top of it and put my finger on the trigger and then I would call pull and he would aim the gun for me and then I would pull the trigger to break the targets and I thought that was the funnest thing ever. And my girls have, have already done it, both of them, uh, about a year ago for the first time. And they kind of reacted the exact same way I remember reacting. So it was really fun to get to share that experience with them. Oh, that's really cool. It's almost like having stabilizers on a bike for the first time. So you just get that that feeling. Oh, that, that's exactly. a really interesting way of doing it. Um, so... You went there, the age of 12, you've realized that this is what you want to do. Now, did your dad then just say, all right, I'm going to take you every week? Did you develop a plan together or was it, all right, we'll just slowly build and see where we go? How, how did it work when when you were 12, when you made that decision? Well, the build really began when I was when I was 10, when I really went out there for the first time and started shooting. He saw that I had a, a talent for this. So by the time I was... 12 and got introduced to the Olympic discipline, I was already shooting at a very high competitive level for a junior, that is, for as much as a 12-year-old can be, uh, on the sporting clay side. So I was already used to shooting about once a week or twice a week. And then when I decided that I wanted to come and do this, we had a, a we lived outside of town and we had a, a small portion of land, but it was just enough to put a ski field on. Mm. So that's what we did. As soon as I decided that I wanted to do this, I was very lucky my dad was actually in construction, so building this didn't cost too much either. <laughs> and so within about a month, we had a skeet field built in our backyard, and I started training there every day. And I shot seven days a week. Oh, my goodness. For how long? Uh, it, it just depends. And during the winter, I would get out of school at 3 o'clock and wouldn't be able to make it home until about 3.30. So I would shoot from about 3.45 or 4 o'clock until dark. And then – at times, Georgia can get, uh, like I said, I grew up in Georgia near Atlanta, and darkness comes in about 6 o'clock. So we actually put up lights over the field so we could shoot at night too, just so I would have enough time to properly train. Crikey, that, that sounds exhausting. W- would your shoulder and your arms get sore? No, you, as you do it more, your body adapts and understands kind of the – the motion that it takes to move as well as how to dampen the recoil. And to be honest, the shells that we shoot in the Olympic discipline aren't very heavy. So we're shooting a 12 gauge gun, but with the equivalent of a 20 gauge load. So it's, it's essentially very light. It doesn't kick very much at all. Ah, okay. It's interesting that you, you had your own space to be able to practice. It's uh, I've spoken to one other shooter on this podcast, uh, Richard Folds, 
who won, I think it was Double Trap in 2000. And similar to you, he, he had his own piece of land, which he was able to kind of practice every day. The the one interesting thing that he, he did say to me, and I, I'm, I'm interested to see if this is similar to you, is he said he learned a lot more from competing in the sport than he did in training. Is that something that you would agree with that were, was similar for you? I would have to agree with him in in essence that because yes, you do learn a lot when you're out competing and and put trying to put everything together because oftentimes you learn what not to do. And for me though, training is is extremely important because that's where I refine everything. So I kind of learn what works and what doesn't work in competitions, and then I I, I gradually take that back into my training process and find out and, and really hone in on what perfection looks like. Now, as a teenager and 13, 14, 15 years old, and that was really hard to understand, and I didn't really understand it. So thankfully, I had a good coach. My dad was there behind me every day, and he would help me kind of learn. We learned together, and we saw what worked and we saw what didn't work. But as I've gotten older, I've understood that training is the most crucial part to any competition. And what a lot of people, you'll hear a lot of people say, you compete like you practice and you practice like you play. Well, for me, it is it is truly that. I try to make myself absolutely perfect in practice so that way I can go out and do the exact same thing in competition. It's kind of flip-flop for, for me before. Mm, okay, that's interesting. And so you mentioned your your dad there as your coach what was that relationship like were you able to have it as father and son and and coach and student and was there ever a moment where you had to make sure that they were separate uh we had a hard time separating things <laughs> and it was, it's funny because we we actually he's not my coach and he hasn't been my coach since after 2008 so we've had a, a pretty good long time of separation there but it was difficult growing up because we're both A-type personalities, and he was a shooter. He was a very good shooter, but he didn't compete in what I competed in. He was a trap shooter, and I was a skeet shooter, two very different games. And thankfully, we were able to work enough together to be able to dart towards a common goal to get me through the 2008 Olympics. But then after that, I kind of took a, a step back and really focused on just making sure that I was doing the right things myself. And I actually, at the time, I was in the Army as well, attached to the Army Marksmanship Unit. So my job was to come out and compete and try to go for Olympic golds. We had a coach there, um, and his name is Dean Clark. He's a, a former shooter, former Olympian. And he was able to kind of give me good feedback, which is what, at that stage of my life, that's what I needed. I needed somebody to stand behind me, not tell me what to do, but when I needed a another set of eyes to say, or I would ask, what did you see there? And he would, he would give me that, that feedback that I needed. And then I would make adjustments from there. Mm. It's a, that different type of experience, isn't it? Um, yeah. Just for those who, who don't necessarily know that much about shooting, Vincent, can you just explain the, the, the difference between uh, what your father was shooting at and, and the, the skeet shooting that you were doing, that you are doing oh. even? There's several different schemes that are shot around the world. Uh, The Olympic disciplines are Olympic skeet, which you have a high house and a low house, and then the targets cross over a central point. And on this field, you have eight stations 
situated in a half moon. And then in trap, it's a Olympic trap again. It's a big bunker, about 60 feet long, that is 16 meters in front of you, and or 15 or 16. I'm not not quite sure on that one. Uh, and then you have 15 machines. Those machines throw the targets away from you, not crossing or anything like that. And they don't cross over a central point. And then in the American disciplines, the targets are much slower, and, and the the skeet field is positioned the same, but the sequence of the targets. And again, the speed of the targets is different, much slower in American skeet. In an American trap, you only have one machine in a bunker out in front of you, starting at 16 yards. And so the targets are vastly different. Trap is basically going away. Skeet are crossing targets, although you have a lot of other um, looks on a skeet field as well. That's how you can kind of break it down for the general population to understand. Oh, okay. No, that that makes sense. Thanks for that. And let's just talk a little bit about your 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 time in the army. When did you when did you sign up? And and, and you mentioned that they they went and allowed you to um c- continue with your competitive career. How how much of it have you had to spend with with the rest of the army and 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 do any service or anything like that? Well, I was recruited by the Army Marksmanship Unit starting at about 15 years old. Mm. And their sole job is to shoot and compete in in world events as well as coach or train other soldiers on how to – in marksmanship proficiency. So at 16, I started really debating going into the the service because my two options were – or three options really were to, to stay at home and shoot and have my parents pay for everything. And that really wasn't going to continue very much longer. Or I could go to college and shoot for one of the about three or four colleges at the time that offered scholarships. Or I could join the military and shoot every day as much as I wanted and have some of the best training partners in the world to train with. So it kind of, you kind of see where, where I'm going with this. It was much easier to pick that option than it was anything else. And so I joined actually when I was 17 years old, between my junior and senior year of high school. Uh, Because of the way that my graduation date and the 2008 Olympics and the the selection process for the 2008 Olympics, the way that all fell, I couldn't graduate from high school and then go through my basic training and go through my individual training for the military and still make it back in time to compete for a spot in 2008. So between my after I like the day after I finished my junior year of high school, I shipped out to go to basic training, and I spent that entire summer and the first week of my senior year of, of school in army training. And then I came right back to school and started I think the day after I got out of basic training. And so I went back and finished up my senior year. I shot for the team, uh, made the 2007 world championship team, and then. I shot the full summer of after I graduated and shot, won my way onto the 2008 Olympic team, uh, then went back and did my individual training for the Army, and then went and competed in the Olympics. So it was kind of a roundabout process to make it all fit in, but it was a really unique experience being able to do that and shoot for the Army team while I was in high school and getting a totally different experience than any other college or any other high school kid could really do. Yeah, that's also very different to... Uh what I've heard from a lot of the other world and Olympic champions on this program, specifically the Americans who very often go through the, the university system. So it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to hear your journey on this. Uh, one thing I was going to just say though, is um, 
2005 you were in the World Championships and, and won, is that right? Yes. So 16 years of age and you were the best of the world. What was that like? Uh, that one was, I don't think I was really prepared for it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> I, I went to my first World Cup, which was in Changwon, Korea, um, and won. And I had just turned 16 like the maybe a week before, maybe two weeks before. And I went on to, to, like you said, win the world championships. But kind of one of my – I always try to, to match this mark. And I haven't been able to do it yet again is I went to seven international competitions and I won seven medals uh, oh. with a low being silver. So four golds and three silvers. And I just had a great year. But again, like I said, I don't think I really understood what was going on at that point in time. I was just an arrogant teenager that thought that I was better than everybody. And I let everybody know it. It's <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not what I'm like anymore. I, I've, I learned a lot in humility because the, the very next year, I didn't even make it to a traveling team. Uh, I went from, from the best to the last. And it wasn't a good feeling. It wasn't a good experience by any means. So I kind of re reassigned myself to make sure that I was going to go and compete at the highest level while having respect for everyone around me as well as myself and just go out there and, and do things the way I needed to do it. And I'm guessing the time with the army as well probably made you a little bit more humble, I guess. It absolutely did. And that 2006 year when I didn't make the team, that's the year that I went through basic training and that taught me a lot. It definitely matured me a great amount. And I don't think that I would have been the same person if I hadn't gone through the military training. Mm. So let's move then to 2008. We've kind of got to this part of your journey. And your first Olympic Games, yes, you've won a world title. But you you show up and in qualifying, you you break in a new, you make a new Olympic record. And then you you go on to uh, become the champion. How was that whole experience for you? It was really fun. <laughs> and it was because it was an it was an accomplishment of my goals, of my dreams that I had had dreamt about almost every day since I was 12 years old. I mean, that's all I could think about. I was consumed by getting to the Olympics and winning a gold medal. And to get out there and actually have the chance to do it was a dream come true in the first place and then to be able to go out and compete at at some of my best levels and make it into a sudden death shoot off for the gold and the silver. And I think that I'm nervous. I, I'm wearing a cooling vest that's circulating ice water through it. I've got like three ice packs on me, one on my head, one on my neck, and one I'm just kind of moving all around. And I can't stop sweating. I'm drenched because I'm just so nervous. <laughs> and at 19 years old, I'm the youngest one there by far and going out for the, with the chance to, to win this because I have a one target lead going into the final. Well, I drop one target, get into that sudden death shoot-off, then I think that I'm nervous, and afterwards I find out that the guy I'm shooting off with, his name is Tori Brovold from Norway, his king and queen were sitting in the stands watching him. <laughs> so I'm like, you know what, maybe I didn't have it so bad after all. But <laughs> I mean, it was it was such a unique experience because we walk out there, there's 10,000 fans sitting back behind us, and everybody's kind of screaming and chanting and we're, we're going good. I don't really hear any of this. I'm just focused on all I know is I have to go out here and I have to beat him. And we shoot the first pair. He crushes it. I'm like, oh, all right, well, I'm going to get up here and do this too. So I get up there and I shoot my first pair. And then we get onto the second pair because uh, you shoot one pair at a time in these shoot-offs. And then he misses the second target. And I step up and all I remember thinking of is you just won the Olympics. 
I don't really remember calling for the target. I don't really remember shooting the target or moving. I just remember them breaking and then saying, you just won. And then everything went kind of nuts from there. But talk about an experience. I think that that was probably the highlight of my entire shooting career, feel-wise, of just knowing that I finally accomplished what I wanted to do. That's incredible confidence to say you've just won the Olympics before you've even taken the shot. That's incredible. We've spoken on this podcast a few times about being in the zone. Was was that you being in the zone? Absolutely. Uh, that, that point in time, the whole match, I had been shooting really well, but I'd had slight blips here and there where I lost focus and I, I lost being in that zone. And the, the guy, the gentleman that I work with, his name is Bob Palmer out of Canada, a uh, sports psychologist. He's, he was the first one that really taught me how to get into the zone. And that feeling of being truly in the zone was there, like I said, most of the time, just a couple of times it would pop up and not be there. And then in that shoot off, I was completely in the zone. I was completely happy and fearful all at the same time. There's, there's so many emotions that are going on all at once, but I, you're like aware that they're there but I couldn't even feel them because I just knew that this was what my plan was and this was what I was going to do. So that zone really came in and just kind of took control of me. What were some of the techniques you were then told to try and get into the zone? What were some of the things that you, you were told would, would help you to get there? Uh, well, for me, it was the most used piece of advice that I had ever gotten was from an old Italian man. He's about, I don't know, in his 80s at some point when I think it was about 11 years old. And he told me, if you think about it, you screw up. So (laughs) (laughs) what I try to do is I have a song going in my head. And what that does is it takes control of of the conscious mind, since the conscious mind can only think about one thing at a time, at least in a a male's mind. I don't know about females. They can multitask way better than I can. (laughs) And so I just have that song playing in my head. And especially when I was a teenager, this really worked for me then, is – I would sing those lyrics, and that's all that my mind would be consumed by. So then I would let my subconscious go on autopilot and just take control of my body. Mm. And that's kind of the zone for me is if I can keep that song playing in my head and keep it clear, then I know that my body's going to respond the way it needs to. Mm. I think that's something similar that the um, economist Daniel Kahneman has spoken about in his, his book Fast and Slow, those kind of two parts of the mind. What was the song then was oh my goodness i can't even remember now it was uh three doors down was one of them oh they're great and i I love them and then what was the other one i honestly can't remember what the other one was now (laughs) now i remember 2012 2012 was another three doors down song as well as you're not gonna you're gonna think i'm crazy it was a song by sarah borellis and oh shoot now i can't remember the name i remember her but can't remember the name and uh but that was – it was pretty interesting because it was my wife's favorite song at the time, and it was really a, a chick kind of song, and it just worked for me, so I went with it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? When you hear songs over and over again, you might hate them at the time, and then later on you start to like them. Like, for example, I, I grew up in my mum's car where she'd play Celine Dion every day, and I used to hate it. And now I'd quite happily listen to one of their songs. Yeah, I shouldn't really mention this on a public podcast, but I've just said it anyway. Um, <laughs> it is funny how those thing, things work. What about now? 
What do you What do you sing now, or not sing, but have in your mind now? Yeah, now it kind of used to. It would always be a, more of a rock base, and now my wife is really big into country music. Both of us are uh, country and Christian music, so it really just it just depends on what the song is. As long as it's got a good tempo, and I don't really listen to the words that much. It's more the song and the, just the flow of everything. Um, this past year has been a lot of Jason Aldean. Actually, last few years have been a lot of Jason Aldean. And his songs just kind of work for me. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. We've got more from Vincent in just a moment. But before we get back to the conversation, I just want to give you something. Now, I mentioned earlier that I've done over 100 interviews with Wales and Olympic champions. And to do that is no mean feat. And it it does take quite a bit of work. And if you've got your own podcast or YouTube channel or blog, I'm guessing that you're always looking for content. And consequently, you're always looking for guests to book. And I have written an article. It's called Seven Tips and Tools to Get Hurt. It's called Seven Tips and Tools to Get High Profile Interview Guests. All you've got to do is click the link I've put on the show notes page, sign up, and you will get the article. Seven different tips, seven techniques that I use here at The Best in the World with Richard Parr to get podcast interviewees. Please go and check it out. It is very, very helpful and hopefully will get you more guests and more contacts for whatever you're doing, not just in sport. So that link is there, seven tips and tools to get high-profile interview guests. And I think we'll all agree that it's pretty high-profile to get a two-time Olympic champion, three-time world champion in Vincent Hancock. So let's return to the conversation. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. You mentioned when when you were competing in that 2008 final that there were a couple of times where you did lose focus. Again, was there any kind of technique that you had to try and recognise that and go, all right, I've got to get back into the zone? Was it just re-singing the song or was there something that you would do? Uh, there is. There, so there was one particular station where I was having an issue. It was low six, uh, or station six with the low house target. I missed four out of my five targets uh, during that whole competition on that one target. And every time I would come to the station, it would come in the back of my mind that, hey, you missed this last time. You're, you're going to miss this again. Hey, make sure you don't miss this. So what I do when that, when that negative energy kind of comes back in is I stop myself. I would reset and I would tell myself a positive word or a positive phrase and says, no. I'm going to hit this. And just nowadays, I tell myself, perfect, be perfect, a perfect move, perfect mount. And that's, that's all it takes to break this target. And, but then I was really fighting myself, trying to get myself through it. Because again, I was, very, I was much more aggressive when I was a teenager and at that age, and especially at that, at that event, that I would constantly kind of harp on myself and say, no, you can't think like that. You, know, you, you, you have to hit this target. Don't think like that. Don't think like that. Well, come to find out that when you say don't think about it, that's exactly what you think about. And I, I learned that more as I got older. <laughs> and so I was fighting with that. But thankfully in the shoot-off, I didn't have to shoot low six because I missed it in the final. 
That's what took me out of first place to the tie for first place. Thankfully, in that shoot-off, all we had to do was shoot Station 4, and I had been smoking Station 4 the entire time. Um, so I was very grateful for that. But nowadays, I, I've learned, like I said, to just stop myself, completely reset, tell myself positive words or phrases, and get myself to a clear mind, a clear conscience, and move forward. Mm. Well, no, that, that's really, really fascinating. You said there about having 10,000 people watching you and I'm, I'm guessing for your your standard shooting competition you don't don't have crowds like that is there anything you can do in training to replicate that sensation or is there anything you can do going into a competition which doesn't have quite as many people to rep- replicate that same sensation that feeling that having so many eyes on you was there anything you were able to do to between 2008 and 2012 knowing you'd again be in front of a big crowd or did that not matter to you um for the most part it didn't matter but i still did train on uh, as many ways as i could to try to replicate those nerves that would be brought about by or distractions that would be brought about by having uh, to shoot in front of all those people and definitely beijing was probably the largest amount of people that we've ever shot in front of and typically it's hard to get a crowd because we have one field that's only 160 feet wide and 135 feet wide. <clears throat> and so there's only there's a limited amount of space that you can put people to actually watch. Um, so what I always grew up doing was we, we call it distraction training. And I had a group of friends that I would practice with. And in doing so, we would make it as hard as possible on each other. Now, we would say the craziest things. Um, we would do the craziest things. I mean, we would push each other. We would, we would hit each other with sticks and pull each other's vests down, try to throw things in front of them while they're trying to focus on the targets, throw targets out of the house while the targets, while the actual target hasn't thrown yet. And we would make it, and my dad even would turn the sprinkler system on. So we would have to shoot in between the sprinklers and just to try to maintain our focus while we're there calling for the target. And I continued that while I was in the Army. I would get whoever wasn't on the Olympic team, I would bring them out while they weren't training, of course, and they would continue to train. But while they were not doing anything, I would bring them over to my field, and I would have them yell at me, have them clap their hands, make noise, beat on trash cans, wave bushes in front of my face. Anything that I can do to make it as hard as possible on myself so that way when I got to that stage, no matter what happened – I wasn't going to be distracted because I was used to it. Mm, no, that, that, that's a really sensible idea, and it, it seemed to pay off. And it paid off four years later in 2012, where you again broke an, an Olympic record as well. Uh, you No shoot-off that time, and you seemed to be absolutely dominant in London. How was that experience for you? That one was, was probably the my favorite experience of all because of where I came from a year prior. A year prior, 2011, <clears throat> I, I was ready to be done with shooting. I wasn't having fun. Um, I, I just I didn't want to be out there. I was done with traveling. I had two, or I had a small child at that point in time. My, my oldest daughter was born in August of 2010. So I had to leave my wife and my daughter at home. Then we found out we, that we were pregnant with our other daughter in the middle of 2011. And so it just kind of kept snowballing on itself. And I remember at one point in time at a World Cup in uh, Marbor, Slovenia, 
I call my wife and I say, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And she told me, no, just, just get back home before you make any decisions, before you say anything to anybody. Let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. And then you can make a decision in, in a month or so. So I did. I came back home. We talked about it. We prayed about it. And I just kept going back out to the range and kind of just trying to get through, going through the motions. And then through one of our discussions late one night, she asked me, what's your goal in shooting? What do you want to do now? And that's when I realized that I had no goals because I had already accomplished everything that I wanted to accomplish in 2008. So I reset my goals. I kind of reset myself and then found my passion for the sport again. And I dug myself out of that hole the last half or last quarter of 2011. I won the Pan American Games and then set myself on a goal. I set myself steps for 2012. I'm saying, okay, my first World Cup of the year, I need to make top 10. Well, I finished 10th. And then the next World Cup, I needed to finish in the uh, in the top like seven or eight, I think is what it was. I think I finished seventh. And then after that, I finished in fourth place. Uh, at the the last World Cup, my opportunity to get a, a medal, I finished in fourth. And I said, okay, you know what? This is the test event for the Olympics. I finished fourth here. I'm going to make the next step, and I'm going to win this thing. And that's exactly what I did. I knew when I went into London that I was going to win that match, and there was nothing that anybody could do to stop me. And I had one of my best matches ever, and I felt no pressure, and everything was working for me. I was completely in the zone at that point in time. And I think the only reason I missed two targets out of 150 was because we had some really awful weather in London. We we were getting sleeted on and rained on and wind and bad backgrounds and everything like that, but we just made it work. And it was to know that I was able to come back from being so far down to – and people, I mean, even my, my former national team coach said that I was done and that I did just quit because I was shooting that bad. And then thankfully we had a national coach change. <laughs> <laughs> that's always helpful. That's not a very good national team coach. Um, and then came back and did, did what I wanted to do, did what I dreamed of doing again in 2012. Because mm, I, I watched the highlights of your victory in 2012 before we had this interview and you you mentioned you only missed two shots and uh, those two shots were in qualifying is that right yes yep so in the final you shot everything and i think it was the the second to last shot you'd uh, you'd done it successfully you were the olympic gold medalist and then you had one more to make it a perfect 25 in a final which i don't think anyone has done before uh, again what's going through your mind there because surely on that Shot number 24, your Olympic champion. Were you still so focused that I want to get this 25th to make a record? Or were you even, did you even realize that it had happened? Or were you just trying to get the, what was going through your mind there? Something that, that I've really had in my, in my mind that I've always done is that I always want to be perfect. And that is what I train for every day. When I compete, that's what I'm competing for is perfection. So anytime I have an opportunity to go out and be perfect, that's what I'm looking to do. And I knew that I had been counting the targets. I knew that I had a one-target lead going into the final. And then the guy in second place dropped another one on station five. 
And I knew once I hit my targets on station five, and I told myself, I was like, it's over. I've got this, and there's no issue with, with it whatsoever. And uh, so I got over there, and I shot the first target. Like you said, I knew that I had it won, and every, the, the crowd started going crazy. But to me, the round wasn't finished yet. And even on my world records, when I've shot 125 and then perfect finals after that to, to have every world record and Olympic record that, I, that you can have – it doesn't matter to me until it's finished, until I can be absolutely perfect. So, whereas a lot of people would would start showing emotion once they win, I don't show emotion until after everything is done. It doesn't matter where I'm at, what I'm doing. That's just how I am. And you said before those games that in 2011 you'd struggled with motivation, and you spoke to your wife, and you discussed your goals, and. You've left London now with a second gold medal, the first person to ever successfully defend uh, an Olympic shooting title. What then is your motivation? Well, I was the first person, the only person to ever win an Olympics back-to-back. And I knew that in doing it, if I could do it back-to-back-to-back, I would be the only person in shooting history to be able to go three in a row. Mm. In in shotgun that is so trap skeet mm. or double trap, and that was my motivation. I'm always. It's not just about the medals that I win; it's about the legacy that I leave. And I know that by building my platform, by by winning more medals, then I can have a bigger voice around the world, not just for myself, but for the shooting sports as a whole. So that's really what I wanted to do: is I wanted to go into to Rio, and with the with a chance and the know-how to get to three in a row. So that was what I had been working for and set steps for from the moment that I won in 2012. I said, okay, I'm not going to do what I did last time. I'm going to make sure that I have a goal that I can drive myself towards and work towards every day in practice, every day in competition. No matter what I'm doing, I have a goal and I know what it is and I'm going for it. And how... how were those steps going into Rio? Had you had you achieved what you needed to do going into into the 2016 games? I had achieved going into Rio. I had achieved every goal and step that I had set for myself. Um, Mike. So in the U.S. over these last two quads, we have a point system that you can go to World Cups and World Championships. Excuse me, and through medals won at those matches you can earn points towards making an Olympic team. And so for us leading into 2016, the points started and ran through the entire year of 2015. And I think that the point total was 35 points to be able to make the Olympic team, which if you won two world cups and made a final, I think then you would make the team Mm. hands down. No questions asked. Actually, I think it was just, if you won two world cups, so I went to the first World Cup, and I won. I said, okay, now I need to go, and I need to win the next one so that I can get my points and get everything done. Well, I went to the next one, and I finished fourth. And I was so, I was one target out of the gold medal match. And it just, for some reason, I had shot great the entire match, and I let myself get a little unfocused towards the end of that final. And I dropped a target late, and that's what put me out of contention. Then I dropped another target late to put me out of contention for bronze. So I, I went in, I had a, a match the very next week here in the U S 
that I had to go and compete on to make the 2015 World Championship team. And so I went, competed in that, won that, and said, okay, now that's one more step closer. Then the very next week, I had another World Cup. So it was back-to-back-to-back World Cup, or matches, major matches, with no training. And by the time I got to Cyprus, which was that third World Cup, I was just completely exhausted. And I didn't have a good showing. I had a, a terrible first round. I think I shot a 20 out of 25, which I don't remember. I don't think I've ever shot that in a World Cup. And I ended up shooting, I think, a 117 or 118. So I kind of brought it back together to uh, after that one round, but it still wasn't good enough to, to get me placed anywhere. So I took a break off a couple weeks after that match and said, okay, now to get back to my goals, all I need to do is go to the next World Cup and win the next World Cup, and I'm on the team. So I went to the next World Cup. I shot. I missed the very first target out, a high one, and then proceeded to shoot 149 straight. So I, that's the only target wow. that I missed, and I won that one by a couple of targets. Um, so it was a great match, and I got my points. I'm automatically qualified for the team. And so, okay, great. That was my goal. I'm on the Olympic team for 2016. Now, your secondary goal for this year was to get to world championships and win world championships. So I'm going to go for that goal. I went to Lenato, Italy, um, a couple months, I think a month after that last World Cup, and shot another great match. Ended up shooting a perfect final and winning in a shootoff uh, to win my third world championship. So again, I had accomplished everything that I wanted to accomplish that year, and leading up to the the Rio Games. So I, I took a little bit of time off again and said, okay, I planned out all of my matches for 2016. So this is what you're going to do in these matches. And then you're going to get to the Olympic Games and you're going to give it everything you have and you're going to win. Well, I went into the, the, the World Cups. I made every final in those World Cups. But the one goal, I guess, that I didn't reach was I didn't win a medal at one of those World Cups. I finished um, – actually, I, I got a bronze. I'm sorry. I didn't win the – I didn't win it. I wanted to win one of the World Cups. And I finished – Fourth place, fifth place, and third place, I think, and those three World Cups. I'm like, okay, well, it's not exactly what I wanted to, but I did accomplish my goals of, of making those finals, getting into the top six, and competing for a chance to win that medal. And then get down to Rio, and I just feel off the entire time. And about a month leading up to the Rio Games, I just wasn't feeling right. And something was in the back of my head saying, this one isn't going to be for you. This is, you're going to shoot and you're going to give it everything you have, but this one's not yours. So I struggled with that. And I called Bob and I'm like, okay, look, I've done everything I know how to get my mind in the right spot. When I'm practicing, I'm practicing fine and I'm competing, at, uh, I'm practicing at a very high level, but my mindset's still not right where it's supposed to be. So he walked me through everything that we've done in the, over the past, through the last two Olympics, and my mind, I've, I've got my mind kind of where I need to be, but it's still just not right. And I go out and I'm shooting extremely well the, on the very first round. And then I just kind of like what happened to me in 2008. I had one target that my mind just kind of shut down and didn't work on. And then I get to the next round and it's two targets. And then I get to the next round and it's one target. And then it's one target every round that I shoot in Rio. And it just, I'm, it puts me two targets out of making the final, and if I would have been able to make that final on that score, uh, one of the one of the guys that got in would have been the same score, and he's the one that won the gold. 
So I had an opportunity and my mindset just wasn't quite right. So I told my wife afterwards, I'm like, look, I, I know I'm not done. I'm going to go back to 2020 and I'm going to give it everything that I have and I'm going to win in 2020. So here's my goals. Here are my steps. I'm going to take off a lot of time after 2016 because I need to invest more in you, my, into my family, and spend some time actually be a husband and be a father and, and get myself right into the back or right into the the mindset that I needed to be. And so I took off seven months after, after Rio. And now the, these last three matches that I've competed in here in the U S I've won them actually less. No, the last three, um, nationals I won. And then we had a small match here, um, that I won. And then a, another fall selection match, which is our selection match for next year's world championship team. And I won that as well. Uh, competing at a very, very high level and probably my highest scores that I've shot ever. And going into this, this year, I know what I have to do. I know what my plans are. I'm going to get back into the world cup circuit. I'm going to try to make finals and then I'm going to try to culminate and win the world championships at the end of this year, which has quota places on it for the Olympic team. There's only 24 Olympic quotas available around the entire world. And the first ones are given at this year's world championship. Oh, so as that, wow. Yeah, and the quota places are extremely hard to come by. So the sooner we can get them, the better. <laughs> and that's really my goal is I want to lock up a quota place for the United States. I'll still have to try to go to earn it again the following year um, to be able to actually make the team. But having one is better than not having one. Oh, well, I, I wish you all the success with that. And I'm, I'm sure we'll see you back on the top of the podium again. Just just two follow-up questions from, from what you were talking about there. and. Uh, firstly, you mentioned you spoke to Bob before you went to Rio. Did you then sit down with him afterwards and try and look into what eventually went wrong? Or did you actually go, actually what he spoke to me beforehand was all right, it just didn't click? Yeah, I, that's that's really what it was for me. It just Everything that he said is stuff that we've talked about in the past. Because mm. he and I have a, a very open conversation whenever we speak. It's not so much as a him teaching me or him him doing something for me. It's more of we have a conversation. We he kind of guides me uh, into the, making the right decisions on what I need to do and what the the techniques that I use, which ones to utilize for the situation if I'm not using the right one. And um, but for the most part, I I didn't have a conversation after afterwards with him because I was I was resigned to the fact that I didn't win. And that was okay. I was perfectly fine with that. Surprisingly enough, I don't. That's the first time I've ever been okay with losing, but I was, and I just kind of wanted to let it go and say, you know what, this one wasn't for me. I knew this going into it. Something was telling me that it wasn't mine, and it wasn't for a lack of trying. It was just things didn't work out for me this time. So I'm, I'm not even really thinking about it to be honest. I know what went wrong. It was just because of what my mindset was. And also, I had a, I had a couple of little technical mechanical issues that I had been working on at home, and wasn't paying attention to down there. So that didn't help either. And but for me now, is I know where I need to go, and I'm not going to look back to what that mindset was, what I was doing back then, because I've I've corrected everything, and my form is is probably the best it's ever been right now, and it's it's evident. I mean, I averaged I think this year a 123.8 out of 125 so it's 
like I said, the best I've ever shot in average by far. And I'm really looking forward to, to getting out and using what I have now on the world circuit next year. Uh, we'll see the world circuit is different than the look than the U S circuit, but you know, if I can compete like that and throw those scores out there and shoot the finals that I've been shooting, I'm, I'm going to be okay. I know I will be. <laughs> sure, it would be fantastic. How were those seven months off for you? Were you able to relax completely? Did you were you itching to get back to competing? And 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 what do you like to do when when you're not competing? How do you like to unwind? Well, I thought that I was going to only take off about three months, <clears throat> and I was enjoying it so much that I ended up taking seven months. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I'm like, you know what? There's nothing on the nothing on the world championships, nothing on any world cups this year. So I'm just gonna not compete. I'm gonna let other people make the team, let them travel for the first time. Is I mean, I've been doing this now for 12, 13 years. I don't need any more experience. I think I've got it. And if I'm trying to learn something at a competition now, then I'm kind of wrong. I need to be learning that in practice and taking it to the competition. But it was the time to be able to spend with my girls and my wife was something that I had been craving for a long time. Uh, being in the military through the first two Olympics, I didn't get a lot of time. Uh, whenever whenever I was at home, I was still at work. And then I would get to, to come home and see my, my oldest daughter for maybe an hour a day. And that's all I got to see her. So knowing that her and I are a lot alike and getting to actually get to know them on a much more intimate level, that really kind of set reset my whole soul of of wanting to come out and do things and I want to be there for them yes but I finally got to spend that time and to have fun and to enjoy myself and enjoy them that I was able to go out and actually enjoy shooting again and towards the end of that seven months I did get an itch back and I wanted to go back and I was really enjoying training this entire year but I also learned this year how to divvy up my time when I'm on the range I have to be this this shooter Vincent. And then as soon as I get done with that, I have to come back home and be dad and husband Vincent. And that's something that I'd struggled with for years and really never understood until this year. So getting to experience it finally and being able to, to not be that arrogant um, A-type personality all day long, although I try to be as respectful as I can outside, it kind of you know, the people that are closest to you, those are the ones that get to see all the effects of everything that goes on. So my wife was used to, to seeing me in, in shooter Vincent mode, if you will. And um, my girls were too, but they all enjoyed actually having the laid back dad and husband for a change. Well, it's been wonderful to learn from the shooter Vincent and the dad and husband Vincent today. I think we can all agree we've certainly learned a lot and we've learned a lot of things, which I think we can transfer into our everyday lives as well whether we're in a sport or just in business or our everyday job so it's been so good to speak to you Vincent um before you go is there anywhere online where we can continue to follow your journey uh well there's social media that's really where I have my biggest presence at I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram so it's just look me up it's under Vincent Hancock uh you'll be able to find me on either one of them you know, we it's been a lot of fun getting to, to travel around and I, I've always been bad about taking pictures. So um, that's when my wife, my wife made me get Instagram this past year and she's like, no, you are going to use this and you're going to take pictures wherever you go. So although I didn't travel much this past year, we don't have a ton on there next year with all my traveling. It should, uh, should kind of spark up. So it'll yeah. be fun. 
it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see all some some of those amazing places you get to go and we'll make sure we put links to this when this podcast goes out vincent thank you so much for all of your amazing knowledge all of this time and thank you for being the best in the world thanks for having me i really appreciate it the best in the world podcast with richard parr I really enjoyed that with Vincent Hancock on this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr. If you're into your shooting, you might want to go back and listen to my interview with Richard Folds. He was an Olympic shooting champion from the 2000 Games. Really good interview with Richard. Again, another one brilliant on the topic of mindset and what goes through your mind in a high-level competition. Please go back and listen to that. It's on Acast. It's on iTunes, it's on Stitcher, it's of course at sportachino.com and as I've said before we've got over 100 guests that have appeared on the podcast. Go and listen to any of them that you've missed. I've had so many great guests. Shannon Miller, part of the Magnificent Seven of Gymnastics. She talks about her battle with ovarian cancer. So heartwarming her tale and her fight against cancer that's a brilliant story speak to Lizanne Van Voren who crossed the Atlantic with the first ever full woman crew all female crew incredible story spoken to Brian Clay a decathlon Olympic champion they're all on the best in the world with Richard Parr and if you enjoy these podcasts please give us a rating and review that would really help spread the word of this podcast I'd really appreciate if you could do that on iTunes or on Stitcher all right I'll be back next Thursday with another interview with a world or an Olympic champion a world record holder or a world number one to find out what they do to be the very best until then Have a great week. Goodbye. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.